Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. And welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies, hosted by Thara Anjaria out of Bombay, India, a regional political capital, the commercial capital of the subcontinent, the goal, as another in the largest wrote in a hugely popular book of every restless Indian schoolboy. And so the perfect setting for our chat today with Philip Stern of Duke University. Philip's book is all about the politico-mercantile beginnings of British rule in India. It's not enough to say that the English East India Company's factors went from being traders to rulers. Back then, the distinctions between sovereign powers and mercantile functions were not quite the same as they are now. The young men who came out to India saw these things as a holistic whole. Though, as Philip points out, there were many among them who were quick to recognize and marvel at the extremely idiosyncratic situation they found themselves in. Good morning, Philip. Good morning. And uh, thank you very much for agreeing to do this for the New Books Network. It's a pleasure to have you doing this for us. That's my pleasure. Um, well, there's been a lot written about the East India Company, and uh, obviously there's been a lot of analysis done. So could you tell us something about how you came to be interested in it? Right. Yeah. Well, you know, I was, I've was i been interested in the subject of the British Empire and British imperialism for a very long time, and the East India Company seemed in many ways a kind of natural way of exploring that. But one of the things that I got very interested in as I started to learn more about the British Empire and as I started trying to study it is just how much the British Empire wasn't actually, uh, didn't actually expand and didn't actually uh, uh, found itself uh, through the British state or through Britain itself, but rather through private enterprise, companies, corporations, and a variety of different forms that weren't actually the state. But that we can tend to think about the British Empire, and this comes both through research and also through trying to teach it to undergraduates and graduate students and, and, and a variety of other audiences. And we tend to assume that the British Empire was British. And in many respects, it was, but in many respects, it was done by a variety of different groups. And the East India Company just seemed like the best example of that. The other was that I, I, the more I studied both British and South Asian history, the more I was extremely dissatisfied with the kind of story that a uh, trading body just all of a sudden turned into a territorial empire. And I wanted to investigate those claims, which seemed to be repeated over and over again, but never really substantiated or um, uh, explored. It was sort of an assumed narrative that I thought was worth explaining. So I started off actually in the beginning of graduate school studying the early 19th century. And the next thing I know, I found myself in the late 17th century without uh, that much warning. Um, so could you tell us something more about uh, your academic career to date? I mean, the period that led up to the writing of this book. Right. Well, the book, of course, started as a dissertation uh, as a uh, PhD student at Columbia University. And then uh, after that, I, 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 I currently uh, uh, teach at Duke University in North Carolina, uh, the United States. And um, uh, before that, I was at American University in Washington, D.C. Uh, I had also spent some time at Cornell University at the Society for the Humanities there. Uh, and so, uh, um, you know, th- there's been a, a number of different uh, contexts in which I've sort of been working on this book. But this was, uh, I, you know, I teach undergraduates, graduate students, and uh, and and uh, this has been the sort of uh, context in which the book has sort of arisen, which is starting as a kind of graduate project, which has evolved into a much wider and and and, and uh, more massive interest in corporations, private enterprise, uh, in the layers of government that went into empire, the sort of complications that weren't just about cultural conflict, but were about actually figuring out how these things worked amongst a variety of people with a variety of different interests and goals and who also always didn't, didn't always get along with each other. I mean, we tend to think about British and South Asian as big categories. But of course, they're really complicated things. Um, so could you give us an overview of the book? Sure. The um, so the book, which is called The Company State, um, is a uh, 
a study of the East India Company from roughly about, I call it the early modern East India Company or the early modern foundations of the British Empire in India, uh, because it doesn't really have, I didn't want to set very firm, arbitrary dates on it, but it roughly studies the East India Company from the middle of the 17th century to the middle of the 18th century. Uh, and the goal of the book is to investigate the East India Company, the political and intellectual rather than the commercial and mercantile history of the, of the early East India Company before its transformation into a territorial empire, first in Bengal and then uh, across South Asia. Uh, the So the methodology of the book or my, my, my methodology that I hope to achieve was to take the company seriously on its own terms as a subject of political, intellectual history and the history of political thought. So the things that the people in the company said, the, the the institutional culture that was formed around the company, so ideas that then reproduced other ideas. Instead of seeing the East India Company as a function or an outgrowth of British history in London, per se, or even South Asian history, per se, but to, say, to see, can we do a history of these other kinds of uh, what I would call bodies politic? Uh, that we tend to take, we tend to take states seriously as actors in, in, in politics, but we don't tend to take companies in that, in that respect. So that, that's, yeah. that's kind of the bigger frame, uh, that I've, uh, that I pursued. And the argument of the book is essentially that the East India Company as a corporation, that is not just as a multinational business, but as a legal entity, as a body politic that, uh, had legal rights and legal ambitions, uh, for, uh, what I would say a certain kind of sovereignty, laid the foundations for what would come next uh, in the late 18th and early 19th centuries in British India. Not that that anything that happened, say, in 1680 or 1690 predetermined or prefigured what would happen later. You can't draw a direct line. But that that history as a history of politics was important and a history of ideas was important. And you see a lot of the same patterns repeat themselves from the late 17th century to the late 18th century. A lot of the same issues that come up in the later 18th century as the East India Company is fighting with the British state, for example, or as the East India Company is fighting with uh, uh, different South Asian powers. The, a lot of the patterns repeat themselves but in a variety of different ways. Um, so your basic contention is that you shouldn't be projecting modern day ideas of the nation state and what it constitutes backwards into the 17th century, into the 18th century. Is that it? Well, I would say I would say that and you shouldn't project modern day ideas about what a company and a corporation is back into the, the period as well. It's a very different way of thinking about how empires work, though. I would say as a kind of aside, the more I think about it, and you know, since I've published the book and I, you know, you reflect on this on this book that's sitting there in front of you, I start to realize that it's not necessarily that we project we should not project modern ideas about the nation state and corporations onto the past is that it's possible that we have very uh, 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 that we need more complicated ideas about what the nation state and corporations are today as well. So that perhaps the nation state that we think is this height and uh, exclusive form of sovereignty isn't exactly, isn't exactly that, especially when you look around the world at multinational corporations or you look around the world at a variety of transnational networks, whether it's based on, uh, economy or religion or culture or language or anything like that, that sometimes maybe we, we need to think a little more uh, uh, in a more complicated, polyphonous way about how uh, political communities are organized. Um, so what did the company itself, I mean, in those days, what did they make of their role, you know, of their rather hyphenated role? I mean, you mentioned a lot of theorists, you mentioned a lot of people who worked in the company talking about what they thought the role of the company should be. So could you tell us something more about that? You know, I mean, what the people, how the people thought about themselves? Yeah, like Macaulay. I mean, you opened the book with a quotation from Macaulay. Oh, right, so, right, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, you know, I, you know, the, the, I opened the book with a quotation from Macaulay because, you know, I think Macaulay, one of the other interests I developed out of this book, it's not in the book, but it's work I've been doing uh, since the book, uh, is on the way people later in 18th century and 19th century, like Burke and Macaulay and figures who are much more familiar to us than the people I write about in the book, thought about the history of the East India Company, thought about the same period that I was thinking of. Uh, in this period, because I, I was, sort of, I became very curious how, if, if we have all these different narratives about what the East India Company became, how did we get those narratives? And, and, and Macaulay is one of the key figures, I think, in establishing one way of thinking about the company's past that set the tone for the 19th and 20th century narratives 
of what that what what we would say the company was, which is that is it was a merchant that turned into an empire. The interesting thing about Macaulay is that if you look very closely, I would say the same thing about Burke and any of the figures who often get quoted, and I'm probably equally guilty of quoting them selectively myself. Um, if you dig down deeper into what they have to say, they actually had a more sophisticated and nuanced idea themselves. So people like Macaulay and Burke will say, on the one hand, this was a trading corporation that turned into an empire. It has no business being an empire. And Adam Smith is another figure like that who also had this this critique. But in fact, if you actually look much more closely uh, at, say, Burke's speeches on the impeachment of Warren Hastings or at Macaulay's writings uh, on the history of England or on Clive or on Warren Hastings again, uh, you actually see that they actually they did perceive that the East India Company was something more than just a a bunch of traders who turned into a um, into an empire just by accidentally falling into into power. Uh, as for the people who were in the company in the early period that I study, you know, they have very different ideas. A lot of people have different ideas. And what I tried to do was was you know in, in the brief space one has in a book, try to encapsulate those ideas as a kind of how did all of the different ideas feed into a an institutional culture feed into a, com- a kind of company thought. And we all know that companies, corporations have official lines and official thought. We all know that states have ideologies and these sorts of things. So what did the, uh, did, you know, how did these people's ideas feed into a kind of general set of principles about how the company, what the company should be? And one way they thought about the company was that it, it was not a, um, this phrase comes up over and over again, that the company's opponents would refer to it as a mere merchant. Uh, which has very specific resonances in the 17th century, but in general meant that, that they did not think of the East India Company as a simple, as simply a, a commercial body. They, they thought of it, first of all, as a, as the organization, the group, the body politic that was responsible for all of the British trade and commerce to and from Asia. Right. But what I thought was very interesting about that, the more I looked at it, and we've always known about that, right? This this is the the, the, the very um uh standard idea that the company is a monopoly and it's probably the biggest monopoly amongst monopolies. But what was very interesting is that the people who ran the East India Company, especially by the time you got to the sixteen eighties and sixteen nineties, didn't understand the East India Company as a monopoly. They 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 or if they did understand it as a monopoly, they understood monopolies as something different. That that when you were dealing with a monopoly abroad, when you were dealing with a monopoly in, especially in a world outside of the world of Christian and Christian in Christendom, the, the monopoly was in fact a form of jurisdiction. That the East India Company was not just responsible for trade, because after all, to trade with what they would call the infidel, right? To trade with the non-Christian world, one also had to have exchanges with the non-Christian world. One had to have diplomacy with the non-Christian world. And that required politics as well as commerce. And these people who ran the East India Company came eventually to think of themselves as the only group, the only body that should be allowed because they had the expertise and the skill and the connections and also the investment in infrastructure to actually have that kind of exchange. So you go from commerce to diplomacy and exchange, although I don't think it's a causal relationship. They, they happen um, kind of at the same time from the very, very beginning. And that eventually leads to a relationship that requires a form of, uh, of political authority. And that political authority comes from both one of the ways I wanted to approach this book was to see how they thought about rights and privileges and authority from both Britain and South Asian sources, right? So they treated charters and Mughal farmans within a kind of similar cognitive universe. Now, whether they're actually right or not, and people have written about this too, that's not the issue. The issue is that they actually saw these two things as mutually useful sources for how they might um, cobble together different forms of, of, of rights and authority. How, for example, where do you get the right to coin? Where do you get the right to wage war? Where do you get the right to plant a colony? A place like Bombay, or uh, or Calcutta have very different foundations, and Madras have very different foundations for how um, what the legal basis for their uh, plantation and expansion is. The, the last thing I would say uh, on that is that I was very concerned in this book also not to accept the standard. You know, I come from a perspective of uh, from both uh, British and South Asian history, but particularly the kind of nexus in British imperial history uh, as it's sort of been reformulated over the last several decades. And one of the ways I wanted to look at the East India Company was um, to not artificially or arbitrarily separate what's the, the way people are thinking about the East India Company 
and the way people are thinking about other colonization efforts in the wider world, particularly in the Americas and the Caribbean and across the Atlantic. Uh, and I think when you look closely, you actually see a lot of the same forms. So these people are actually learning, and there's a lot of evidence for that, that they're learning how to settle, and which is a, a, a complicated word in that context, but how to settle uh, a plantation or a colony at Bombay or at Madras uh, in the 17th century from examples in Virginia and Massachusetts and also the way London operates. I mean, when, uh, when the East India Company, for example, was uh, looking in the uh, 1660s to uh, establish its rule at Bombay, they actually sent out copies of the Act for rebuilding London after the Great Fire of London uh, as a model for how you might build a city. It never worked out. Of course, they, there was a, it was a fiction that there was nothing there, right? I mean, this is, this is, they, but, but these, these kinds of ideas are very, and, and they're very interesting when you look at how the plans that emanate out of London smash up against the realities of actually governing people who already exist, whether they were people who were there under Portuguese rule or, rule or people there before that. So that is very interesting because you mentioned the idea of monopoly and then there were all these differences between the, like, well, the factories at Bombay, Calcutta and Madras. So would you say that, like, you know, each regional, like, center of the East India Company, at least in the Indian subcontinent, also saw itself as being independent from the other centers? No, actually, it's interesting. And one of the things that I was surprised at when I first started doing this research, you know, probably a decade ago or something like that, was that, in fact, the kind of centralization that we're all, that, you know, people who, the, the the period that I'm interested in is increasingly more and more people have become interested in it, but for a very long time it has been largely uh, ignored compared to the large amount of work on the period after 1757, 1765, and certainly after 1857. Um, but the kind of centralization that you saw, for example, happen after the territorial expansion the late 18th century actually was experimented with in the late 17th century as well. But interestingly enough, it wasn't Calcutta, which, of course, didn't exist as a British settlement to the 1690s, but Bombay, which was actually seen as a as a center of the company's administration. In fact, in the late 17th century, there was there were distinct attempts to try to create a hierarchical structure. So there was what they called a general which in the later 18th century they would call a governor general. Uh, I don't think there's a there's a lot of hundred years between the two things. You can't really draw a straight line. But uh, and that general was uh, supposed to be in charge that there was a kind of hierarchical system Com- to make it more complicated. There was also a regional system. So the government of Bombay, for example, was in charge of the factories along the western coast and in Persia and in the Middle East. Whereas Madras, for example, was the, was, was, uh, had authority over the factory at Hughley, which became Calcutta eventually, and then, um, also in Java and Sumatra and Indonesia and the China trade. So there was also kind of regional, uh, sets of hierarchy. So, so the presidency system that emerged in the 19th century, uh, it, it's not the same thing at all, but there's a kind of, and one of the interesting things to me on a very blunt level is if you if you want to say that there's a line you can draw between the 17th century and the 19th century is that the three places where the East India Company chose to create its main um, centers in South Asia were still the same centers for the British Empire in the 19th century. That said, I, I, one of the important things I thought one of the things I thought was important when I was writing the book was not to um, uh, be too teleological about it and only study the was not to predict the focus on South Asia for the East India Company that would emerge in the 19th century because in the 17th century places like Indonesia, Java and Sumatra but also St. Helena and the South Atlantic were also very important places for them and so I wanted to see how those ideas evolved and emerged as well but when you look at India itself you can really see patterns emerging that didn't have to end up the way they did but 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 you can, as historians, you can kind of trace back how that managed to emerge the way it did. And uh, you made an interesting comment on pages six and seven. This thing, uh, it also challenges the long-standing assumption about the contrast between Europeans in Asia, between, on the one hand, supposedly modern capitalist northern European companies and an antediluvian Portuguese estadoda India. Um, that comment, could you elaborate on that, please? Right. Yeah. 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 No, thank you. I'm actually glad you noticed that because that's actually one of the, that. Uh, if uh, if there are three things that I wanted this book to do, or three 
narratives that I wanted to engage with. One was, that I've already mentioned too. One was the the narrative of a sharp rupture between the the first half of the East India Company's history and the second half that's centering on 1757 in the middle of the 18th century. The second was this rupture in British history between what goes on in the Atlantic and what goes on in Asia. But the third that I thought was very important was also this very complicated historiographical rupture in the literature and the way we think about the European East India Companies or the European efforts in Asia. Because, of course, it's, you know, Europeans can't get lumped together just as much as British or South Asian can't get lumped together, like we are talking about before. And, and, but it seemed to be that there were two different stories out there it, for a variety of reasons. Um, one was that the English company was much more, was different than the Dutch company. And there's this narrative of, 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 of divergence between the two of them. That, the Eng- that by the middle of the 17th century, the Dutch had chosen a really aggressive, warlike, posture and the english had gone for peaceful trade i could go on uh, if we had yeah, many more hours for this interview yeah. um, about why i think that's the case uh which i think has a lot to do with actually the rhetorics and the arguments made by the dutch and the english at the time in the 17th and 18th centuries about what they were doing and i think those stories get picked up over time the english accusing the dutch of being particularly aggressive especially after um, several incidences in incidents in the 17th century when the Dutch particularly violently uh, ousted the uh, English company from particular stations uh, in Java, uh, 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 particularly in, in, in the Pacific. But the um, but the other story that's often told is almost contradictory, which is that the English and Dutch are one kind of company, and the Portuguese and the French always have a very funny place in here. We always forget about the Danish East India Company, which was actually very important, especially in southeastern India in this period, especially for religious ideas, which I was very interested in the East India Company's approach to religion, which I spent a whole chapter trying to figure out. Uh, so on the one hand, the English and the Dutch are mortal enemies who are never uh, who have two completely different forms of operation. But then in a different kind of way of talking about it, historians have always lumped the English and the Dutch together as the proto-capitalist Protestant companies, almost mimicking uh, uh, Weber's idea of a Protestant work ethic, that the Protestants would be good at capitalism, whereas the Portuguese were only interested in conquest, in in souls. So, right, so the Dutch and the English get talked about as if they don't care about religion, they're not in it for conquest, they're in it for the profit, for the, for the, the, the pocketbook, right? Whereas the Portuguese are in it for glory, they're in it for all of these, and that's why I use the word antediluvian, that somehow they're retrograde, they're not... Uh, uh, modern, like the English and the Dutch. And these, these narratives don't make any sense. First of all, you can't understand anything that the English company is doing without understanding that they're, even perhaps more than something like the Mughal Empire or the Safavid yeah. Empire, their big concerns are the Dutch and Portuguese and other Europeans. The second is that despite the fact that I try to trace this through the book, despite the fact that their big rivals and enemies are the Dutch and the Portuguese, they're also their big models. So they're constantly trying to learn. Oh, the Dutch do it this way. And they're always saying things like this. Well, the Dutch get to do it this way. We should do it this way to best confront them. The at Places like Bombay, for example, it's impossible to not accommodate and understand Portuguese government because you're actually taking over a Portuguese government, right? Same thing in Madras, but you're not taking over a Portuguese government. You have a lot of... Uh, uh, Portuguese and, 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 and Luso Indians, Indo Portuguese subjects moving in, uh, Catholics, for example, moving into places like Madras, that you have to understand and deal with. And so as a result of that, you, um, I think that's what I was trying to say, which is that we, we need to see what in the Atlantic world literature has come to be called entangled empires. That these are all, they're all kind of wrapped up with each other. They're rivals, they're models, they're, they're, uh, uh, intersecting in a variety of different ways. There are Dutch soldiers for the, in the East India Company, there are English soldiers who run away to the Dutch Company, and there's all kinds of examples of how they're intertwined. I, I feel as if, you know, the book is about, uh, 300 pages long, and, and I feel like I only scratched the surface of actually being able to tell that particular story, but I, I wanted in the book to gesture at a lot of these things and hopefully, you know, they'll, they'll go on to do more with that. 
Okay, so in that case, could you just tell us something about the company's relationships with the crown, how they evolved, how they started out, you know, what changes took place over the years? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great, that's a great question. Uh, so one of the other things I was, I really was keen on exploring here was how the East India Company had a relationship with the crown, the English crown, that in some way, that, well, in two, in two different ways. One, one that, that was both that was more what I would call an alliance that waxed and waned over the years, as alliances do, as they were useful to both sides. I started from the perspective, let's not assume the crown is in charge at all times, right? So the East India Company gets as much out of this relationship as the crown does. And who, the question of who's manipulating whom, the best example I always had is, that, you know, if you've got uh, what directors of the East India Company, what before 1709 were called committees. Uh, if you had a committee, or, or, or what, again, what we would call a director today, in Parliament, is this evidence that the state is taking over the East India Company or the East India Company is taking over the state, right? We don't know. I think it, it goes both ways. And so, uh, so the relationship is very complicated. The way I want to talk about the relationship was as a, as a form of of alliance and relationship that um, was at times mutually beneficial, but also at times was like a tug of war and each, each side trying to pull away or, or, or take as much authority from the other as it possibly could. So the, the model that I think was best for understanding this was to think about the East India company. I should talk about this a bit in the introduction. Again, one could go on for yeah. 300 pages just about this uh, as, as a corporation and not as a corporation like a multinational corporation, as we talked about before, but as a corporation, uh, in its, in its, in its original legal concept in British law and in European law in general, which was as a, as a, a legal conglomeration, a legal entity, uh, uh, the bringing together many into one, uh, government. And the best example or the best model for that was cities, incorporated cities like London, with the Corporation of London, Portsmouth. Um, with mayors and aldermen and these, these sorts of things, but the what what historians have told us about those, but the, that those cities existed not just to not just underneath and within a place like England, but actually in tension with authority. They existed to have their own form of government, their own rights and privileges, their own immunities, and that the history of state formation, in some sense, in England, is the history of, in part, of the English state. Uh, trying to reduce those immunities and those, uh, those, 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 those forms of independence, right? So that, so, so that's a kind of model that I, I was sort of thinking of. The other model is that the East India Company as a kind of sovereign body, uh, or as a form of, of government in itself is not able, it uses different forms of authority and different forms of, of, um, uh, Foundations for legitimacy, and those were there were three. I isolated out three different forms. One one form that it took from the English crown, but also other forms that it took from South Asian and Central Asian and East Asian rulers on the par, you know, in the same kind of way that you took them from the crown in these forms, like we talked about. Before. Um, and then the third, what it did on its own, independent of those groups, establishing its own diplomacy, setting up its own. Um, uh, uh, forms of authority that were independent of all three of those so that it kind of operated uh, amongst all three. That, and I think that's what really, when I think about it, what corporations in this context overseas can do best, and I don't mean it's a good thing, I just mean it's what they do most efficiently and effectively, is they can run between those different forms of authority. So you can't get an English charter for it, try to get a Mughal Farman for it. You can't get a Mughal Farman for it, just try doing it yourself. And and the best situation was when you could have all three and they could co coalesce, but that didn't happen all the time. The best example of that is coinage, where the East India Company gets authority from the English crown to coin, but this is of little value when uh, the Mughal Emperor Aurangzeb also takes offense at this issue. And so they're always constantly looking for a way of getting authority from England so they, they can sort of be immune there, getting authority from the Mughal Empire where they, so they can be immune there, but also doing it themselves because coins are very potent symbols of your own sovereignty. You put your own symbols on them. They circulate. The East India Company issued coins in Persian with the names of English monarchs on them. I mean, it's this very hybrid 
and Fuse World they were very comfortable with. So, I mean, to get back to your question earlier about how they, yeah. how did these people think about themselves, I think they were much more comfortable with the fluidity between these worlds than we tend to give them credit for. They weren't just boldly English planting themselves in an alien world and insisting that, that, that they bring those forms along, but they were bringing lots of ideas with them that clashed, sometimes clashed or sometimes complementary. Right, so this uh, network of corporations, you could say, I mean, uh, was this what the East India Company tried to transplant into its colonies, you know, when it tried to actually build up settler colonies? For example, you got the first chapter out here. So yeah. could you tell us? Yeah. So would you say that they tried to corporatize local life, you know, like basically transplant all the structures that have been familiar with in England, you know, and kind of uh, organize like life in India according to, well, a system of organization, something very formal, more, more codified. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they did and they didn't. Right. And and so yeah. I, I, I try to trace that. And I don't think there's any one answer. I think there's a lot of local variation and you can only generalize in certain ways. Um, they did try to bring many forms of English urban life, for example, uh, or corporate life to India. And they brought it, though. As I was saying before, they brought it both from England, but also from colonial enterprises and exercises. Remember, I mean, by this point, by the time, the reason I start in the middle of the 17th century is because this is when the East India Company uh, begins, though it's not the beginning of the story necessarily, it is it is when the East India Company gets its first uh, urban colonies. And I was very careful that places like Madras and Bombay and Calcutta are thought of as colonies, not factories. They're not just trading posts. So then you have these places and you have to say to yourself, well, we may trade in all of these very valuable commodities, but now we're also a government over people and we have to do something about that. So they do borrow a lot of ideas about how to be a government from a variety of sources that are uh, in Europe and in England. So uh, biblical examples are all over the place. Previous historical examples in places like London or Amsterdam are all over the place. Or like I said before, colonial ventures in uh, in the Americas or in the Caribbean. Uh, but at the same time, so you see this in a variety of different ways. You see it in, in, in the laws that they pass, but you also see it in architecture and city planning. I mentioned the, the London Fire before. So you see that in these different attempts to bring these English forms together. At the same time, they don't just try to impose, or if, if they do try to impose, where they do try to impose things, they often run up against local practices and and, and active participation in government of the of residents. And one of the things that I was very got very interested in the book was how you know we often see the East India Company in in Asia as a kind of company of rule, and but but the English in in, in the Atlantic as a company of as, as an empire of settlement. The truth is that no, not many English settlers came to places like Bombay, Madras, yeah. and Calcutta in this period, but they, but they did think of attracting non-English, non-European settlers, mm -hmm. South Asian, Central Asian settlers, either as soldiers or as uh, weavers or as um, uh, fishermen, right, to these uh, to these communities, and they thought of them as settlers, and they they, they treated them as such. So. I guess the short answer would be that that they mixed what they found in Europe and the European colonial world with what they found on the ground in South Asia and in, in, in and elsewhere. But at the same time, what was striking often was how complementary sometimes those forms could be. So they brought, tried to bring, for example, to Bombay a form of guild system that they also found imitations of uh you know they were i i i'm careful to to i want to be careful to say that to 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 note that these these different forms were different but they were able to see analogies amongst them uh and and sort of integrate themselves into uh, or try to find parity between what they found in south asia for example and uh what they what the, the kinds of ideas they had about um about government from uh, India, uh, from 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 England, which I guess raises a more methodological uh, uh, point about this entire period, which is that it's possible that there may be more uh, similarity across the early modern period in some very broad forms than we have been often thought about in the kind of East as East and West as West kind of way of thinking about empire. 
that the early modern period had a number. I mean, there's a lot of local difference, but there's a lot of local difference yeah. everywhere, you know. So, uh, what about jurisdiction in that case? You talk about the jurisdiction of the company state and that it was considered necessary that they have some kind of legal system because otherwise, you know, they were not fit to keep the dominion they already had, right, much right, less right. to increase it. Yeah. So well, I mean, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean that that's and that's sort of one of the fundamental things I wanted to think about. The East India Company, the the, the ways the East India Company always. This idea about monopoly has led for, led for us to think about the East India Company in the late 17th century, especially the arguments for its independence, for its rights, as a problem of political economy, as a problem of they're protecting their monopoly, they're protecting their commercial right, and ultimately them selfishly protecting their profits. It's all selfish, but the question is, is it all about profit? And actually, I take that back. I mean, selfish is, is not a very useful word for thinking about this, actually. It's, 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 it's really about sort of thinking about how you think about running a, both a, a merchant and a state at the same time. And the so in that sense, the idea about jurisdiction is that that with this monopoly or with this what they would call exclusive privilege or exclusive right came not just the right to govern over English trade to and from Asia, but because English trade to and from Asia required English people to actually go to Asia, <laughs> right? And when I say Asia, I'm using the term very broadly because the East India Company's yeah. charter jurisdiction was extremely broad. Uh, you know, they Technically, their charter gave them exclusive rights over this very small part of the world from the Cape of Good Hope to the Straits of Magellan, essentially half of yeah. the known world, right? Or half of the world, for that matter. Um, so they took that to mean, and so subsequent ex examples and, and evidence confirmed that they took that to mean that not only that if you had to go to Asia to trade, it was a corollary responsibility for the East India Company to govern over those people who went abroad to trade. And then once they started creating settlements that had forts and armies as small as they were, they were still little, you know, they were still garrisoned armies and had forms of government and forms of, of and had churches and all of this, the, the things we think of as being part of a colonial settlement. This transformed for the East India Company or it, it sort of was articulated as a form of jurisdiction over people, right? People on the move. So. The best example or, or the, 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 the way I talked about it in the book was that, you know, we always think of interlopers, this, this broad term. Everyone hates the interlopers and except for the people who like the interlopers. And it's a, this is the big fight in the late 17th century that we always think of interlopers as smugglers, right? As people who were violating the East India Company's trade. But that's not how the East India Company saw them. They saw them as people who upset its government. Smuggling was part of it. But not all interlopers were smugglers. So, for example, one of the, I trace some of these people in the book. Some of the quote-unquote interlopers never even really engaged in trade with England. They just lived in South Asia, <laughs> traded in what was even more lucrative, which was trade to and from different ports in Asia, <laughs> but lived there outside of the company's government and rejected company government. And they called them interlopers. <laughs> so did they actually hurt the company's trade? Not in a necessarily formal sense. But in the sense that they upset negotiations with Mughal authorities, for example, in places like Surat, yeah. if they the fact that they um, flouted company jurisdiction and therefore were seen to be a, an attraction, almost a bad element that brought that that sort of converted other English people to their ways. In this sense, they were seen as interlopers, interlopers in the company's jurisdiction, and. That jurisdiction then translated into other things that are much more formal in, you know, uh, the, the authority, say, for example, to convene a court and then to try people in that court. And that the, all these ideas about jurisdiction feed into the ideas that emerge in the middle of the 18th century when the transition comes up. Uh, when the transition emerges between, uh, 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 you know, what we used to think of or, you know, what I, what I don't want to think of anymore as commercial to territorial power, but it's from one form of understanding jurisdiction and one form of empire to a different form of empire. Yeah, before we go on to that, uh, you devote a lot of space to the Glorious Revolution and its influence on the East India Company. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the, 
you know, I wanted to think a little bit about what that moment meant for the East India Company. Yeah. And to me, what, what I was trying to trace was what happens to the East India Company in the 1690s after the Glorious Revolution, because what doesn't happen to the East India Company after the Glorious Revolution is a change in its path in Asia, right? So there are continuities uh, there. And so, for example, uh, the best example is, is that at least in the immediate aftermath of the Glorious Revolution, the East India Company doesn't become any more friendly with the Dutch in yeah. South Asia or in Persia than they had been before, when, of course, now there's a Dutch prince who is the king of England, right? In fact, there were all these, there's all these great examples of the Dutch running around Persia <laughs> saying things like, well, you know, now the English have become vassals of the Dutch state, so they're, we're now in charge of them, and et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, for the English, and what, what it leads for for the English is this, this even more pronounced sense that, well, there, there are brothers, but I, I quote an example in the book of one of the company governors saying, well, there are brothers, but they're brothers like Jacob and Esau. They're brothers who are trying to fight with each other. You know, they never used uh, the earlier examples were Cain and Abel, but, you know, that the, the, there's this sibling rivalry in the sense that they know that they're Protestants, but that's almost the familiarity almost breeds contempt. But what does change for the East India Company, and again, I think it's often the transformation of the company in the, in the, after the Glorious Revolution. And of course, I mean, the story, uh, for anyone who's not familiar with it, uh, is very complicated and sometimes, uh, extremely maddening one. But essentially, in the late, uh, the late 1690s, after about a decade after the Glorious Revolution, the English Parliament charters a second East India Company, a rival East India Company, that was meant to replace the first East India Company. And what ultimately happens is the two companies seeing that having two East India companies that both claim exclusive jurisdiction over half of the world wasn't working, you unite with each other and then create what then becomes the United East India Company, which is what the, the East India Company most people are familiar with is called. There was also a third East India Company that uh, was founded in that period, which was the Scottish East India Company, uh, which also took advantage of this moment after the Glorious Revolution. This is a company that's much more famous for having tried to plant a colony in Panama and engage in the Atlantic trade. But the colony in Panama that they tried to uh, 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 found was actually, I mean, founded on the same principle as the as the canal that was cut centuries later, which was that that they could trade if they could plant a colony in Panama, they could they could cut across the isthmus and trade to. To, to Asia, mostly China, more efficiently than going around the Cape of Good Hope, which is what the other European companies yeah. did. So the Glorious Revolution became this moment where the lid was taken off the can of the possibilities for what how East India trade might be organized. And what I think is that it's not so much, I mean, there were different ideas about monopoly and free trade and these sort of uh, some ideas that anticipate Adam Smith a hundred years later, anti-monopolism. But I think what really happens is that the polarities of politics shift in England in particular and in Scotland as well. What used to be a the East India Company had always relied. You asked me before about its relationship with the crown. And it always relied on a relationship with the crown in some respects, independent, but also in alliance. But all of a sudden, you've got this new, not new, but a body with a much more power than it's had before, which is the, the Parliament, the English Parliament. And the Scottish Parliament. And they're trying to stake their own claims in as having authority over empire. So you see it in the Atlantic, for example, the English Parliament, and then of course other agencies of the English Crown as well, trying to exert power over um colonies in in the Americas, for example, new forms of regulation about smuggling, uh new forms of regulation about piracy, which actually relates to the East India Company to the Atlantic as well, is that you get these uh, uh, English and, and American pirates who show up in in the Red Sea and in the Indian Ocean and cause a lot of political problems for the East India Company. So the Glorious Revolution changes the the nature of the negotiations over who is in charge of the English Empire abroad, and then after 1707, who's in charge of the British Empire abroad after England and Scotland unite. So, so I guess what I want to see is the Glorious Revolution is actually that moment is the beginning of a transformation in two different ways. I mean, you have the East India Company evolving in Asia with its claims on jurisdiction and its claims on sovereignty and its claims on people, which then become foundations for 
or the claims the East India Company is going to make over the course of the first half of the 18th century, which then, in a variety of complicated ways, leads to the conflict at Plassey. But at the same time, there's a there's a there's a uh, parallel story. And as I put it at the end of the book, you know, for the East India Company, for the British Empire in India to emerge, not only did the East India Company need to acquire an an empire in Asia, but the British, but Britain and the British state had to acquire the East India Company. And so the the regulations that emerge, the attempt to found this new company, the political moves that occur at the union of the two East India companies, and then a variety of moves that happen through the first half of the 18th century, also create both a legal and political foundation for incorporating the East India Company into the British state. Uh, this is a history we often see as starting in the 17 in, in the in, in the middle of the 18th century as well, but it's it's another one of these stories I wanted to trace back for at least 60, 70, 80 years before that. Um, so going back to the question about monopoly, um, obviously uh, this was something that was seriously affected by the Charter Acts of 1813 and 1833. Yeah. So I would assume that uh, outside the time frame of your book, but I would assume that the company wasn't too happy about the acts. No, 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 they weren't. I mean, and actually some of the stuff I've been working on lately, it's, yeah. um, the, the, uh, it's amazing to me, actually. And I didn't, I have to admit, embarrassingly, I, I, I'm still learning, uh, a lot, uh, at, the more I dig into it, just how much this earlier period parallels that later period. There's a lot of the same kinds of conflicts in the late 18th century that then lead to the 1813 and 1833 Act that are not just about trade. I mean, the thing we talk about in 1813 is the East India Company loses its monopoly. But of course, you know, and as a lot of people know, the other thing that happens in 1813 is the East India Company loses its ability to bar missionaries from India. Yeah. And one of, one of the arguments that I would make, I gesture at it in the book, but don't have the time to get into it too deeply, is that this problem in 1813, starting from the 1790s on, is not just a, it's not a problem that the East India Company just doesn't want Protestantism to get to South Asia. Far from it. What they, what they want is to protect that right they've had for centuries, which is to determine which British subjects get to go to India and which ones don't. That jurisdiction. And when the missionary, when, you know, missionary societies come along and say, no, 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 we want to decide anybody should, we should get to say which missionaries get to go. That's a huge problem. So when in 1813, which also those debates are also about revenue collection and revenue policy, which also go back, you know, a long time. Uh, who should collect revenue? What's the jurisdiction of the right to collect revenue? The, 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 the victory, though it's a very small part of the debate that gets kind of blown up in British politics to become a big part of the debate, the, the, the gesture that missionaries should get to go at their own choice is a huge blow to a century and some of attempts to, to protect the East India Company's right to give licenses and passes to people to go abroad. There are other debates that happen, not just 1813, but the charter renewals in 1794 and 1783-1794, uh, 1784-1773, that are about the East India Company's jurisdictional rights in the Pacific, about the East India Company's ability to govern over British subjects in Asia. And this leads to the Supreme Court of Calcutta. There are all these examples in the, you know, that, that one could think about that call upon the very conflicts, the very kinds of ideas that you see emerge in the late 17th and early 18th century. And the same thing in 1833, uh, in a much more massive sense. Here, in a way, you have a, you have a reversal where the East India Company is taken out of commercial activity and, uh, essentially given an entirely governmental role. But that governmental role has been so attenuated and, uh, and, 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 and reduced by a kind of parliamentary intervention that by the time you get to 1833, which is precisely where we started this conversation with the Macaulay speech in Parliament of the Government of India. You have a very different idea about what the company, what, what the appropriate role of companies are in governing empire. And that's kind of what Macaulay is, is in a sense saying there, which is that, you know, this is a very peculiar thing that's emerged and, um, we need to deal with it with peculiar rules. I guess one of the arguments I want to make in the book is it wasn't that peculiar. Empire, in the early period was done was very rarely done by the state. Uh, and it was only through the formation of the modern state in the 18th and 19th centuries that the British state became in charge of its own empire. And one of the ways it did that was through a variety of forms of parliamentary legislation that 
eroded the independent rights of other forms of polity and sovereignty. So I like to see 1773, 1784, 1794, 1813, 1830, these successive acts of parliament as part of a long history of state formation in Britain, making the claim that companies are owe a debt to the British public and therefore need to be regulated by the company. They called it reform in the late the early next century. But it, it, if you see it from a different perspective, it's a, it's, it's a kind of form of state formation. That's fascinating. Do you think your future research will explore some of these questions? I hope so. I, you know, I, so I, yeah, I, I'm interested in a whole lot of other things. I mean, you know, you open up a, a, a can of worms when you start dealing with such a rich and interesting period. And, and I, um, w- one thing that I've become very interested in, I'm working on, on, on uh, I'm very interested now in a kind of more broad idea of the corporation and the role of the corporation in establishing the British Empire. So, uh, thinking about how, corp- you know, again, sort of exploring the relationship between what's going on in India in the early modern period and going on in the Atlantic. I've also become very interested in uh, corporations in the form of cities and the way cities work inside of the British Empire, which would be the subject of, 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 of future work. And as I also was saying before, I've become very interested in the ways in which the East India Company, um, the East India Company's history, as it was told in the second half of the 18th and early 19th centuries as part of those political debates. I mean, these period, these reform acts you were mentioning, they're hotly and heavily debated. And one of the ways they're debated is they're debated uh, on the grounds of history. What was the East India Company? Because what the East India Company was has a great effect on what kind of laws could be passed about it. And so I've been studying and uh, published a few things on this question of of how the East India Company's history was retold in those political debates and how that, what that means about the relationship between politics and history, what it means about our understanding of the East India Company and how political debates can affect our understandings of historiography and, and, and issues like, like that. But in general, they all, uh, I also have a, another interest which is only represented in very superficial graphical form in the book in cartography and the history of cartography and geography and shaping empire, which will feed into uh, work I want to do on places like Bombay and Madras uh, in relation to other plantations in a sense in the Atlantic and how these cities were created and formed and, and exactly the kind of thing you were asking before. What's the relationship between what these people brought with them and then, of course, what they found when they were there and what do, do people on the ground, whether they're European or South Asian, what effect do they have on shaping these uh, societies and these, uh, uh, even the sort of visual and urban geography of these places, which I find very, very interesting, but also particularly what, what, what we call legal geography, the kinds of ways in which geography affects jurisdiction and rights and courts and who can sue whom and these sorts of things. So a variety of different things. I've, uh, unfortunately, I feel as if I, uh, I've, again, like I said, open up a can of worms, they'll keep me busy for a very, very long time. But that sounds great, especially the legal geography thing. And uh, I'm afraid actually you've taken up a lot of your time. But uh, thank you very much for doing this for the New Books Network. No, thank you very much. This is fantastic. So, Fox, a lovely podcast about the early British Indian state. Definitely something that needs more scholarly attention, especially as the economic has never been divorced from the political, regardless of the shade of the regime. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Goodbye.